Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Bruce Jones. Bruce is Vice President and Director of Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, and he's also a Senior Fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy, also at Brookings. We asked Bruce to join us today to talk about the state of the liberal international order and to focus on recent Trump administration foreign policy. Much has been happening. We of course had the Charlevoix G7 meeting of the G7 leaders very recently and we also had the meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, the chairman uh, of North Korea in Singapore. As you will hear, Bruce has dramatically insightful views on both uh, the global economy and on the multilateral institutions that have underpinned that economy, and also on the alliances and rivalries that shape the global order today. The strains are apparent, and Bruce has acute insights into the current global order and the problems that are being faced by the major actors in the international system. So let's uh, join Bruce in this conversation. This particular podcast is episode 20 in Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Let's go. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, uh, Bruce. It's, uh, it's a real uh, joy to be talking about these issues of the uh, liberal international order. Nice to be back. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Bruce, a number of our colleagues, uh, Tom Wright from your shop, Stuart Patrick and others, have focused on the implications of America First and the Trump uh, apparent focus on reversing all the actions of its predecessors, uh, in particular our friend uh, President Obama, Trump withdrawing from the TPP, formally withdrawing at least from the Paris Agreement on climate change, withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. Recently, uh, Zachary Carabell wrote a, um, an editorial in, F, in the FP, uh, Foreign Policy, and he said, Trump likes to break things first. He likes the idea of tearing down old bridges without building a new one first, or at least he likes to talk about it. Carabell went on to say that that's okay as long as Trump has something to replace uh, the current liberal order with. So the question is, does this administration, does President Trump have anything to replace it with? I think the way that the president himself, not the people around him, but the president himself thinks about these issues is that American power is still so substantial mm -hmm. that the United States should be wielding that power to advance its own interests narrowly conceived. Economic, security, etc. Mm -hmm. So that then has two components and I think it's important to distinguish them. One is a distrust, an instinctive distrust of multilateralism. That's in a sense consistent with traditional 
sort of right Republican foreign policy. This is kind of an extreme version of it, but it's not out of the out of the broader texture of, of Republican skepticism about multilateral. But it additionally has something which is uh, new and is unusual, which is a deep skepticism about the alliance structure. And I think that what's fundamentally different about Trump uh, is this deep skepticism about the alliance structure. He sees it as uh, the United States getting ripped off by paying for other people's defense. And he's, uh, you see in the subtext of the things he says in South Korea, you see in the extent to which he doesn't give a damn about the relationship with Canada or whatever, uh, this deep um, skepticism about the alliance structure. And I think that's the thing we need to understand as, as radically different mm-hmm. and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, but what would be the implications of that for the uh, for the global economy in particular? You've talked about this kind of spillover between, you know, certain rising security tensions in the international system and the spillover to the global economy. And might add, uh, today we see that President Trump has just signed uh, an order which increases tariffs on China by some $50 billion. So, so what's the implication then for at least the global economy and the trading system? Uh, yeah, I think we're seeing two sets of effects uh, on how quickly they will reinforce one another, I don't know. One effect is deepening skepticism, and this is not President Trump, this is essentially the national security establishment in Washington, deepening skepticism about China as a whole, uh, a very strong sense of China as um, acting in a more uh, assertive and predatory way in Asia, threatening our interests in a whole series of ways, therefore a desire to see substantial pushback against China on the security front, the economic front, uh, and everything else. Uh, I, I think that's a, a growing and a building dynamic um, and will have reverberations across the entire international system. I think what we're seeing over the last week or so is a kind of a second piece, which is that Trump's skepticism about free trade and the free trade system as a whole, uh, and I think, frankly, uh, a huge amount of misunderstanding about the nature of the global economy, not just in the president, but in his core team, mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing that play out in a way that in a sense will also undermine the alliance system because despite the kind of the headline of his uh, sanctions on China, to me the more disturbing thing is his um, use of a national security exemption to try to put sanctions on, uh, sorry, tariffs on on Canada, Mexico, and Europe. And it just shows a, a fundamental lack of interest in the alliance structure. Uh, and the willingness to ignore that in trying to improve the economic system for the United States, as well as being a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of global economic ties. So I find the trade stuff very hard to talk about because it's premised on a whole series of deep misunderstandings about the nature of the global economy. And it's very hard to make heads or tails of what it is the administration is trying to do. But the, the point I would emphasize is you would have thought in any other presidency that even if you had that set of misunderstandings and this approach to trade, you would have respected the alliance structure and that would have uh, limited uh, what you did. Mm -hmm. And obviously that doesn't hold with this president. And so maybe you can explore just a little bit 
What's the nature of the misunderstanding that this uh, president and his core team have about the global trading system? Well, I think it's two parts, actually. First, it's as if they still think that the world operates where a, a thing is made in Canada and a thing is made in the United States and then we trade them. Mm -hmm. Almost nothing is made that way anymore, as you know very well. Right. A part of a thing is made in Canada, and a part of that part is made in Vietnam, and a part of that part is made in Taiwan, and a part of that part is made in Vietnam, and then it gets assembled someplace in the United States. And that's the way global trade works, right? It's a global value chain system, right? Uh, global production chain system. Um, so that's point one. Um, point two, there's this kind of bizarre emphasis on the... Uh, the current account surplus, as if that were reflective of of anything fundamental. And the president will say things like, oh, it's very easy to win a trade war. We just stopped trading. Okay, well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, the notion that we'll only make cars in the United States. Well, okay, that's possible. It would be a massive readjustment, uh, hugely negative for the U.S. economy in the short term and probably the medium term as well, mm -hmm. quite apart from the effects on Canada and other suppliers. So I, it, it's this kind of double misunderstanding about the way global economic production works. And as a result, I think very dangerous for the U.S. economy. So so are we then likely, I mean, is there is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Do we, you know, we obviously uh, saw him uh, threaten the current uh, Prime Minister of Canada with these um, uh, potential tariffs on um, automobile imports, which again is, I mean, it's the core element of the NAFTA system, which is, uh, you know, the uh, automobile and automobile production, the original manufacturers and all the parts manufacturers. You know, wh where does Trump take all of this? We don't know. Um, one of the things that worries me is that, let me contrast two things. Okay. Uh, let's take North Korea and South Korea. Okay. Clearly, Trump, left to his own devices, would be happy to pull the troops out of South Korea. But he is surrounded by people from Bolton on down who fundamentally reject that and will work hard to block him and have succeeded in blocking him so far. So Trump's instincts are anti-alliance, but he has an entire team of people who fundamentally disagree and who block him from implementing that worldview. When it comes to trade, he has a whole series of people around him who share mm -hmm. some of his ideology and some of his misunderstandings of, of the global economy. Now, they don't all agree with one another. They disagree about lots of different things, but they're more closely aligned to his basic worldview. Uh, so there's much less constraint on him uh, to implement uh, these things. Now, he's beginning to get some pushback in Congress, and we'll see whether that can take hold. Um, but frankly, if we're relying on Republicans in Congress to stand up to Trump, we're in some deep trouble. Yeah, no, uh, that seems to be fairly apparent. Let's, let's uh, look a little bit closer at the, at the Korea um, uh, summit uh, in Singapore as just uh, understanding his, you know, in effect, what you're suggesting, the anti-alliance uh, bias. It was interesting that the language that Trump tended to use, even in the declaration, tends to follow a North Korean, you know, kind of language rather than uh, 
um, U.S. and allied language, right? So we are talking about the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, right? And, and uh, leave aside some of the other little missteps uh, of Trump. But the question is, um, you know, where, where is, what was the outcome of this, uh, uh, of this particular um, uh, negotiation? You said recently, sometimes when the search for stature is important uh, for your opponent, uh, obviously North Korea, giving him, meaning Kim Jong-un, some of the stature up front can ease the way to resolution. It remains to be seen, of course, whether this works in this case or whether Kim pockets the meeting with Trump and returns to his nuclear program. So what's your own assessment at this point of, of the uh, negotiation of the results of the Singapore summit? As a general matter, I've been more supportive of the Trump administration's uh, approach to North Korea than many of my colleagues or many people in Washington. Uh, and in a sense, I still am. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, the summit outcome was weak beer. If you just look at the, if you look at the text, I think what people don't see is that there's a huge amount of work that has been going on under Pompeo. First, when he was at CIA, uh, and now at State as well. Uh, that will continue. Um, I, there were several very, very, very bad outcomes that could have happened out, uh, at the summit. Mm -hmm. One, it could have fallen apart altogether, which I've been writing about, warning about, would have resulted in a, a sort of a fast march to, to a hot war, and that would be a disaster outcome. Mm -hmm. Second, we could have seen something worse, which is a kind of detailed outcome with Trump at the table, uh, and I was very worried about that, because I do honestly believe he would have traded away the, the troops in South Korea in exchange for not very much. <laughs> uh, a much better outcome, in my mind, was to have some kind of framework agreement, and leave it up to Pompeo and Pottinger and the, and the team to to get serious about uh, about the negotiations that follow. And essentially, that's what happened. I didn't love the statement. Uh, there were things that should have been better about lots of aspects of the statement. I don't worry about that very much. Um, the basic question now is for Pompeo to craft a strategy with Japan, with South Korea, with China. Uh, of where we go from here, and mm -hmm. I think there's some reasons to be somewhat optimistic about it. It's still an extraordinary hard problem that hasn't gone away. Um, uh, I'll say one other thing. In his bizarro way, <laughs> I do think that President Trump showed Kim three things. One, he is genuinely willing to go to war. Two, he's genuinely willing to make peace. And three, he's genuinely willing to walk away from a bad deal. Uh, he did it in a very bizarre way, rife with incoherence and etc. But I, I'm reasonably sure that the North Koreans will have seen those three things. Mm -hmm. And it confronts them with a, a difficult position. China has moved on this. China is much more interested in, in genuine denuclearization of the North than they were in the past, uh, for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. So I'm not as I'm not as negative on the outcomes of Singapore. I you know badly managed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But overall, um, I'm I'm sort of uh, it's less bad than we could be. We're in less bad a situation than we could have been, and I'm I'm quite optimistic about Pompeo's diplomacy here. Okay, let me let me just for you a couple little edges around on this. You know, I was surprised to see that the declaration didn't include the word verifiable. 
-hmm. and I know it's just wording, but it does seem to me that it it leaves me a little aghast, uh, given the nature of that the long relationship and Trump's, uh, you know, in in the follow up press conference, his use of the uh, North Korean terminology of you know provocative war games that he now suspends, and apparently his failure to consult with with allies, you may have a view on that. I mean, it just strikes me as we've, he's he's kind of dug himself a bit into the hole, even if it's only Pompeo who's going to have to dig himself out. I mean, look, on the war games, we've been, not we, there's no common we yep. at Brookings, but several Brookings scholars have been advocating that we should dial down the war games as part of the strategy here. I wouldn't describe them as provocative. It was a stupid term, but yeah, you know, they are a very deliberate, right off his coast show of force. When sure. We're in the process of discussing these kinds of things. I think it's perfectly reasonable to dial that back to some degree. That can be undialed in thirty seconds flat, right? We can sure. go back to doing them very, very quickly. So I don't, I don't worry particularly about that one. The terminology was was a mistake. Um, on the consultation with the allies, there's been a, a huge amount of communication. Um, uh, lots of people have told the South that the question of war games was on the table. The question of troop presence was on the table. Of course, there's no, you know, there's no unity of position on that between the between the two. Uh, I, I think it's so easy to overstate the the extent to which there wasn't coordination with the allies. Mm. That being said, it just it, you know, you're also pointing to something that I would would reinforce, which is that Trump himself was not who I wanted negotiating this, <laughs> uh, right? So getting him out of the way and yeah. leaving this Pompeo is is the right outcome. Um, now, of course, it's not entirely out of the way, um, but I, I did not want to see a thing where a detailed outcome came out of Singapore mm -hmm. um, because I was very worried about what that would have, what that would have produced. Okay. Uh, I'm a little less worried now. Well, so maybe. Well, the situation, by the way. I mean, so so where do you think? I mean, wh what do you think are the current kind of positions, reactions of the key allies, namely Korea and Japan? Because I mean, you would barely think that they were involved based on the summit itself. But where do you think they now sit and and position themselves? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to depend heavily on what comes next. Okay. Um, Pompeo, you know, rightly went immediately to to meet with the Japanese and, and South Korean counterparts. Um, that seems to have gone pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, I have actually pretty high confidence in Pompeo's diplomacy on this. Whether or not diplomacy can produce an outcome is a whole other question. Um, that's why I say the fundamentals haven't changed. Uh, I'm, I'm profoundly skeptical that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons yep. uh, through any diplomatic process. But I would rather exhaust that diplomatic process and not have further escalation while it's happening than, than any other outcome. I, I'm still, I would still be worried that we end up potentially in a military conflict on the on the Korean Peninsula, but that's not because Trump made a mistake or whatever. It's just that is the structure of the situation. 
I see. Okay. So I, I wonder if you kind of agree then with our colleague uh, Dan Dresner. He wrote recently in the Post, Washington Post, sorry, uh, that the Singapore summit produced great theatrics. Beyond that, everything that was said in Singapore could be easily re revocable. So embrace the season of conciliatory rhetoric between Trump and Kim Jong-un. Just realized that even if the rhetoric begins to curdle, the fundamental situation will not have changed all that much. Um, that's Dan's view. Now, he also tends to have a less kind of um, concerned view about the nature of conflict on the peninsula, and you seem to be in contrast with him on what are the kind of the uh, the ultimate outcomes there. But I mean, would you? I, I actually think it's it's sort of it's dangerous on all fronts. I mean, I broadly agree with what Dan said, with one important exception, which is I think there's more going on in the diplomacy and the preparation. Um, okay. Uh, it's dangerous on all fronts. It's dangerous uh, if we end up in a military conflict in the Korean Peninsula that can spin out of control. It's it's intrinsically dangerous. It's going to be a deadly a deadly conflict. It's also dangerous if we get to a place where we're renegotiating the troop presence in the South, because that opens up a total Pandora's box about our relationship with China and the security architecture in Asia and Japan's posture. The whole thing is a Pandora's box, and we've sort of, you know, we're, we have no choice but to wade into it because of the the uh, the way that Kim managed his weapons programs in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing is extraordinarily dangerous. So I think we have to have a uh, a sense of the serious risks on all fronts here. Uh, make progress, not make progress. Both of them have, have dangers. So, so I take it that your sense of the uh, presence of, uh, of the American forces in uh, South Korea really has a lot more to do with the U.S.-China relationship than, than even the, the North Korean relationship? Uh, I would say this. I would say that the troop presence in the South is quite fundamental to overall U.S. security posture in Asia mm -hmm. and all of our allies' perception of it. So any fundamental change in that posture is going to ripple throughout that relationship, those relationships okay. in different ways. But additionally, uh, as the risk, if if diplomacy succeeds in reducing the risks from North Korea, uh, it lays bare the fact that that troop presence there is not only focused on North Korea, and that exacerbates pre-existing tensions with China. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is partly why I think there's dangers in both in both tracks. Um, we will end up having to have a, a kind of a uh, a renegotiation with China, so to speak, about what what the purpose of that troop presence is. Mm -hmm. uh, that's beginning to, it's already beginning to spark a wider discussion in China about the nature of our alliance presence and where it's going and what they should do in response. And that's just feeding the broader deterioration in the relationship. Okay, so where is that relationship going? I mean, we just saw again today putting on $50 billion worth of tariffs and the threat to put on another $100 billion if um, uh, China retaliates, and there's every reason to believe China will retaliate um, in terms of the in terms of tariffs. So, wh what's where's the where's the nature of the relationship going between the United States and China? That's just the trade fund. Look, I think that we are already in a mode 
where the essential posture of the United States and China towards one another has shifted from some sort of fuzzy combination of competitive and cooperative mm-hmm. to one where the essential nature is strategic competition. Okay. Now, whether strategic competition becomes strategic conflict is still a whole other question. Uh, but these are this is now a competitive relationship. Um, competition can be benign, can be malign, and there's a mix of the two already. Uh, it's trending in a negative direction. Um, okay. There are genuine and serious concerns in Washington about scale and nature of Chinese intelligence penetration in the United States, as well as allies, about the nature of their use of economic muscle in Asia, uh, about their weapon systems, etc., etc., etc. And on the Chinese side, there's an increasing sense of the United States uh, building up in terms of its weapon systems and its pre-deployments in Asia, etc., a uh, series of relationships with its core allies whose fundamental purpose is containment of China. Um, that's how the two sides see each other fundamentally. There are still pockets of, competi- of cooperation, there are still sort of pockets of, of decent relations. Um, Strangely enough, until now, we'll see whether it survives the trade round, but um, the relationship between Xi and Trump has actually been a stabilizer mm-hmm. in what otherwise been a deteriorating relationship. Uh, relations between the financial communities on the two sides are also a stabilizer. That's not true anymore in the business sector, but it is true in the financial sector. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is dynamic and it's in flux, but I, I do think the fundamentals have shifted to one of... Uh, essentially strategic competition. Fair enough. But then let me ask you this. What's what's the value then of the ramping up of tariffs? If the problem is potential uh, theft of um, uh, intellectual property or the obligation for American companies that want to invest in China to partner and all the rest of that, what I don't see the, the tariff. Well, how does tariff, how do tariffs, you know, in effect, uh, deal with this problem? They don't. They're the completely ridiculous policy response. I see. There are all sorts of things you could potentially do. Right. uh, Vis-a-vis Chinese investment in the United States, vis-a-vis Chinese investment in the tech sector, vis-a-vis, there are all sorts of perfectly reasonable things to do to pressure China to behave differently. Tariffs is a... a uh, bizarrely uh, ill-conceived response. Well, that's that's heartwarming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me let me then shift to the kind of the the closer in allies. I mean, wh- what does one make of uh, Trump's? I mean, uh, uh, withdrawal in the of the recent communique on the G seven. What should the G seven? You know, how do they move forward uh, when he seems so easily provoked in the relationship and um, in the, you know, in the uh, allied coalition? I I think you know my view. The G7 isn't exactly where the action is in geopolitics anymore. Sure, Um, sure. I can buy that. uh, Be... This is very easy for me to say and very hard to do in practice. Um, but if I were a policymaker in Berlin or in Ottawa, uh, mm-hmm. I would 
be doing two things simultaneously. I would be paying attention to the fact, and it is a fact, that despite the rhetoric, despite the trade stuff, etc., we're still pumping resources into NATO, we're still reinforcing NATO in the East, we're still doing a whole series of things that are at core about the defense of the West, despite the president's own skepticism about it, it hasn't actually changed the, the policy. There are all sorts of ways in which we are still acting as if we were a credible partner in the alliance. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I would be um, deepening my ties with the rest of the West. Uh, and I think that the the rest of the West is going to have to do a better job of being able to articulate policy, being able to deepen ties, cooperate, you know, pursue objectives that it has, whether or not the United States is, is with it. Uh, again, easy to say, hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that has to be the response. It, it, it's, not a, it's not a wise idea to, to respond in kind. It's not a wise idea to kind of add to the talking down of the West. Um, uh, I think the wise course is to continue to move forward on policy where there is still deep cooperation and deep institutional ties on the one hand with the United States. Right. And on the other, as I say, I think there needs to be a, a kind of a deeper and a richer uh, collaboration in strategic terms between the rest of the West. Okay. Uh, one last thought around the G7. Uh, I was struck, as for many people, by his uh, call to bring Russia back into the G7 without any referencing of Crimea or, or the Ukraine or anything. And in the absence of him uh, acknowledging that, of course, Russia's in the G20, so I'm not quite sure you know, wh why he was raising it other than I suggested to some of the media that maybe he all he was concerned with is controlling the news cycle and by advocating that obviously it caught everybody's attention i mean but w was there anything else that one might draw from his comment about russia and bringing russia back into the g7 i think it's a fundamental mistake to search for a coherent strategy yeah. behind these kinds of statements okay. so yeah pick your yeah. Uh, it's news cycle stuff that's the way uh, i view it um, but let me ask you, I mean, uh, uh, Mauricio Macri, who's the president of Argentina now, faces a G20 meeting. Now, it's not until late November, but nevertheless, I mean, if, you're, if you were in his shoes, what would you be trying to do between now and the actual meeting of the G20 and assuming that President Trump shows up? Finding another job? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be... Uh, look. It depends very heavily on whether the trade war stuff has de-escalated by then or not, and, and that's unpredictable at this stage. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's an almost impossible situation. Uh, mm -hmm. You probably want to focus in on finding two or three topics where there can be still space for cooperation and building out some activities around that. Okay. Recognize that if the trade stuff is still in play in the way it is, that's ultimately going to dominate the agenda. Um, I mean, he's in an impossible position. Uh, I feel sorry for him, frankly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Well, I guess then the, the, the big question uh, to kind of round this all out, uh, Bruce, is, you know, does the liberal order survive, or more directly, in what way does the liberal order survive or not survive as we move forward through these uh, initial Trump years? I mean, you know, our good friends used to, um, uh, the previous administration, or previous administrations, plural, used to suggest that the American leadership, uh, or in the United States, was the indispensable nation. Our good colleague John Eikenberry at Princeton, of course, acknowledged that the United States was the you know, the leader, the hegemon in the system. So what are we looking at? Where does it go um, as we move forward? Well, the countries are going to face the following unpalatable choices. Mm -hmm. One, align with some other power. I mean, it's not a real choice. Are you going to align with China? No. Are you going to align with Moscow? No. Right. That's not a real Two, stand by and allow the system to collapse. Quite possible. Very bad for all concerned. Three, swallow hard, uh, be wise, be patient, um, work with everybody you can in the United States that still believes in the system, work with one another, keep lots of pieces of this alive. There are still lots of pieces of this alive. Mm -hmm. And ride this out. Now, that's a kind of a, you know, that's a strategy that might well fail. But I don't see an alternative. You know, if we just, if we were to say right now, it's all over, it's gone, you know, NATO's over, etc. Right. We would hastening a highly chaotic situation. I don't see the merits of that. I don't see any other alignment option. So for the West, I think the only option is to try to, as I say, maintain ties with core American institutions where they are, deepen those, main, deepen ties across the West. I think we should be spending a lot of our effort on working with other countries that are uh, broadly benign in their kind of global posture, India and, and others, and, and sort of wait out this moment. Now, that, as I say, it's easy to say, it's extremely hard to do, um, but the alternative is to s sort of watch the full breakdown of this, mm -hmm. um, and, and that ends up in a very, very dangerous place. Um, so, uh, a kind of, you know, institutions-based and waited out strategy may well fail depends on how hard Trump pushes against this, how long he's in office, and how successful he is. Um, but I just don't see the alternatives. And, and who do you think might be willing, able to kind of, uh, you know, uh, step into the breach, at least in, in trying to keep elements of the liberal order kind of operating? Who, is there anywhere to, we can look to see that? I mean, look, this is what I said before. I mean, if you, to my perspective, the single most important element of, of the order that exists is NATO. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Uh, I think we do have some questions in our mind about what the president's response would be if there were an Article 5 situation. Mm. But until such time, the United States has continued to beef up NATO in the West. We're still operating within NATO. There's, NATO hasn't gone away, it hasn't changed, let's not act as if it has. 
uh, let's act as if NATO is still there, because it is. Uh, and the entire American security apparatus is still oriented towards it, and that hasn't changed. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, again, there are sort of lots of things that still are operating. The, the fact of a kind of, you know, political doubt at the top is obviously a hugely consequential thing we can't ignore. But right. nor should we ignore the, the reality of institutions that are still functioning. Um, I don't think we are talking about stepping into the gap, but we could certainly be doing more, and this is not unreasonable for Canada, for France, for Germany, for everybody to be doing more in terms of their participation in NATO, military spending. But for me, it's it's deeper than that. It's um, uh, You've been in these conversations. It's amazing to me still the extent to which, when you're talking to Germans, France, Britain, whatever, and you ask them about their strategy for Iran, for Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Their strategy is to figure out what American strategy is <laughs> in that gap, right? Yeah. There are some of these issues that the rest of the West should be able to have a, a an important leadership role on. You're not going to want to do all of it without the United States, but there's certainly the capacity to do more in strategy than than is and than is currently the case, and and I think that's now is the time for that. Okay. And Heiko Maas's speech, uh, I think, has a kind of the basis for that um, in terms of German thinking, and the French will be there as well. So, okay. I think the rest of the West taking on more burden for themselves is necessary. Uh, I would advocate for that not being a kind of done in a way which is a. Uh, a big middle finger back to Trump, though he certainly deserves it, but it's simply unwise to do it. I mean, there's no, there's no logic in hastening the collapse. We we should be trying to maintain every piece of the institutional architecture that still is functioning, and that's still most of it. Um, and and wait this out. That now we still have to have to be thinking about what comes after this because. We're not going back to status quo ante. We're not going back to a kind of natural American leadership of the West. That's not where we're going to end up. Mm -hmm. We have to be thinking creatively about what is the constellation of actors that are willing to work towards some degree of stability um, that will have to include some form of transatlantic relationship, but it can't just be the old the old gang getting back together. That's not going to work. Um, so it's a, you know, stay calm, work within the institutions that are there, beef up the rest of the West and begin to think creatively about the kinds of arrangements where we can end up after this. Right. So I take it, I mean, in a certain sense, I mean, if we look uh, towards the TPP and, and the collective effort without the United States, nevertheless, to conclude yeah. it, you want to see some of that operating more in the security arena as well as uh, potentially or as well as the trade arena. Absolutely. Um, okay. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, I think, you know, ideally done in a way exactly as was done with the TPP-11, where the United States can come back in if we right. get something resembling normal strategy, mm -hmm. not pretending that we're ever going back to status quo ante, and okay. also being aware of the kind of significant rise in geostrategic tensions. Uh, those, are, those are realities. But, yeah, sort of a, uh, a mature, steady rest of the West uh, strategy is, I think, our best chance. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Bruce, for spending this time uh, exploring it, rather sobering exploration 
uh, of, <laughs> of the of the international sister. Be a good day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but 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 thank you uh, for the time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. <laughs>